0: 264 hours is the world record for staying awake. 264 hours. It was accomplished by Randy Gardner in 1964 as a 17-year-old. 11 straight days broke the previous world record. He had two friends rotate to watch him because at a certain point, your body will involuntarily fall asleep, but he needed them to keep him up. I cannot imagine the pain of staying awake for 264 straight hours. Because we're not meant to live like that. In fact, there is a lot of research that's up and coming about sleep. It's something that we've been able to study, I say we like it's me, but humankind has been able to study more in depth as we are able to probe into the brain a little bit more and we see what's happening with sleep. And it turns out that research is saying that we humans are limited. Who knew? We cannot carry on 24-7 like God can. What the research says is that we essentially, if you think of us like a device, We have 16-hour batteries. At 16 hours, our brains and our bodies begin to deteriorate. If you were to push it to 20 hours of being awake, you would then have the same mental impairment that a drunk driver has. That's how sluggish and slow your reaction time and your thinking becomes. By 24 hours, your brain will automatically go into... uh, what is called, uh, oh, I don't remember the name right now, but it's like little quick uh, sleep-like shots. And it will, your brain, while your eyes are awake, your brain will actually shut down for 10 to 20 seconds at a time, making driving, of course, incredibly dangerous if you've been up for 24 straight hours or more. We, it turns out, need to sleep. And sleep, according to one scientist, says... That sleep is basically repairing the damage done while we are awake. So our 16-hour battery runs out. Our bodies and brains begin to deteriorate at hour 17, 18, and on. But when you go to sleep, it's like plugging in the battery. It's recharging, and all of that's getting replenished. Hence, they say you need an 8-hour sleep cycle. 16 awake, 8 asleep. Our 16 hour batteries. In this passage, we're going to see it talk about work. We're going to see it talk about sleep. We're going to see it talk about children. We come to the eighth, the middle psalm of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. Now you may recall there's 15. There were 15 steps leading up to Jerusalem, so these psalms are mimicking the steps. There were 15 words in the the Aaronic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. Um, 15 words in the Hebrew, and four of those lines are repeated throughout these psalms. You see the word blessed in this psalm itself. But we come to the center one. So that means that Psalm 127, if you think of these 15 as a pyramid, you have seven on one side and seven on the other. And Psalm 127 is the cap. It's the top. It's the pinnacle. And actually, there is some intentional uh, shaping of the psalms this way. Because on one side, the first seven psalms have five psalms with no author and two psalms that are attributed to David. The other seven after this psalm have five psalms with no author and two psalms attributed to David. Hmm, but there's more. The first seven psalms use the name Yahweh exactly 24 times. The last seven psalms use the name Yahweh exactly 24 times. You see, not only were the compilers of the psalms intentional in giving us 15 psalms of ascent, but they're also intentional about which one they put in the center and which ones they put around it. So we have come to the very center of the journey. And I think it's important to see that Yahweh is mentioned 24 times on the way and 24 times after the halfway point. Because what we need to understand is when you get to the halfway point of anything, there's a temptation to say, good enough. The view from here is glorious. I, in fact, I can see Jerusalem. Uh, I can hear the priests singing close enough. I can smell the barbecue of the sacrifices. We're good. There's a temptation to stop anything halfway. Much Most of us are well known for starting projects and never finishing them. Or... We may be able to finish things, but we get so tired at the halfway point that we kick it into willpower, into our own effort to get the rest done. How often is it that we, what we begin in God's power ends up being finished in ours? Paul told the Galatians, look, what began in the spirit don't perfect in the flesh. And so here, this psalm, the midway point, yes, Yahweh was mentioned 24 times, but Yahweh will still be mentioned 24 more times. The way we got here is the way we will continue. We began with him, we will finish with him. So that's important for us to see. Now, also, uh, let's read the psalm and see what it has to tell us here about work. We're titling this eighth step, Work. Work. Not the most appealing title, Uh, and I understand that there are a lot of people who are retired and don't work, and right now, ironically, as I say this, a lot of people aren't working at all. They're furloughed or laid off, or their job got less, or they're working more than ever. There's so many different levels of work right now, but what we're going to see is that the work described here is far more than the career you have or the occupation that you perform. Verse 1. Oh, first of all, it says, A Song of Ascents. This one is of Solomon. Unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. The Psalm opens by showing us this picture of work, that God must be part of it, or else it's all in vain. And don't you love verse two, where it basically talks about a lot of us rising early, going to bed late. But this last, this third line in verse 2, eating the bread of anxious toil, that's such a memorable line. And it's foolish because he gives to his beloved sleep. Here we see... That sleep is not portrayed as a curse or as an interruption to work or as something that somehow prohibits us from doing more in the world. Sleep is presented to us as a gift that God gives to the creatures he loves. Some sleep scientists have pointed out that we are the only species who willfully sleep deprive ourselves without any apparent reason. The rest of creation, and literally the rest of creation, everything, it turns out, sleeps. Even whales sleep. They sleep one half of the brain at a time so that they could keep swimming through the water while they sleep. Everything, fruit flies, sleep. And yet humans are the only creatures who willfully undergo sleep deprivation without any apparent reason. Cat videos is probably the best reason. Not that I have watched those, but it's a thing, apparently. Um, He gives his beloved sleep. It's a gift from God. And yet, how often we choose to eat the bread of anxious toil instead. Rising early, going to bed late. We're going to come back to this theme of work and sleep, but I want to keep the psalm flowing. So he talks about your work is in vain unless God is doing it. Don't eat the bread of anxious toil, but go to sleep. So we got work, we got sleep, and then verse 3. Behold, children. (laughs) Speaking of work and sleep, children are a lot of work and don't let you sleep. So I don't know how this one got in here, but here it is. I'll show you why later. Behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh. So echoing the fact that sleep is a gift that he gives to his beloved, here children are called a heritage, which in the Hebrew is the same as an inheritance. That children are given to us by God as an inheritance. They're a gift. They're a possession. I thought that was an interesting way of thinking of children. Behold, children are an inheritance from Yahweh the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So the psalm's portraying someone with a lot of children is like someone with a lot of arrows in his quiver and he is ready for the battle. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So we have work, we have sleep, we have children now work is not a curse sometimes and i didn't understand this until i got a little older because when you're in when you're a little kid and you're in school and you have chores work seems like the worst thing in the world that's because for children play is their work god has invited humankind to work alongside him but the way we often do work is not with god we work either on our own or against God even. Think of the Tower of Babel and all of those ambitious people who got together and worked really hard to bake bricks and build a tower. That was work against God. And have you ever thought about who are those poor people making the bricks and putting that tower together for the wealthy to enjoy a name for themselves? There are some unmentioned people who are toiling in great vanity over that tower. So um, I want us to turn our attention to Genesis chapter 1 because we need to look at work in the way that God sees work. In Genesis chapter 1, we basically have a week's journal entries of God at work. God rolls up his sleeves and he speaks creation into being and everything begins to obey him. Then in verse 28, after he makes man and woman in his image, it then says in verse 28 of Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I'm giving it to you to subdue and have dominion over. All of these things you have power over. That, by the way, is what it seems to mean in 126 when it says that we are made in his image. It doesn't mean that God has a nose just like ours or that he has two legs and two arms. That's not necessary. He may, we don't know. But that's not what it means. What it means is we work like he does over the creation. So, he's given it to us to subdue and have dominion. Now, that's not to abuse it, but that's to take it and to make something of it, as he will then um, explain in chapter 2, verse 15. In 2.15, it says, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. So, in the beginning, God worked, God created then he makes us to work the creation alongside him. He gives it over to us to subdue and have rulership over so that we could bring out the untapped potentials of creation. That is essentially what culture is. is It's our cultivation of God's creation. Now, Sometimes we cultivate the creation into a negative culture. Sometimes we cultivate the creation into a positive culture. But God's intent from the very beginning was that we work alongside him and that it would be a joy to get our feet and our hands dirty in his creation with him. But then, work becomes toil. Work becomes a burden. Work hurts. Because there is a moment when Adam and Eve decide, we don't want to do this work with God. We want to do this work apart from God. We want to rule the creation our way. That's what they say when they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and decide that they want to be like God. Not with God, but their own style of God. And so it's pronounced that as a result of doing things their way, instead of partnering with God, things will get tough. So, you want to do things your own way? All right. I will put enmity, just Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity, or that strife, that's hostility, that's war, between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. There'll be a battle between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. But eventually, the serpent's offspring will get their heads crushed. To the woman then, he turns in verse 16 and says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So now there will be sorrow. There will be pain in the woman's work. Childbearing. I want you to remember that in chapter 1, verse 28, God first said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's childbearing. And so he gave the woman the great deed of carrying on those three commissions to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But now the effort to do so is going to feel like work. And by the way, that word pain, in pain you shall bring forth children, is the very same word toil in verse 2 of our psalm. Why are you eating the bread of anxious toil? It's the same Hebrew word. So in toil, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Friends, the reason Psalm 127, one of the reasons, is that it connects work and children is because children are a lot of work. But they are an inheritance from the Lord. But they're work for mothers who have to deliver them. And is it any wonder that we call the delivery of a child labor? It is work. And this is the worst sort of work. Well, I don't mean bringing children to the world. I mean the, I hear at least, I hear that going into labor is some of the worst. Um, just, it's not comfortable and it's a lot of work. But the work doesn't stop there. The work continues as you raise them. And there's so much pain and toil as you raise children. And mothers especially feel the pain and the, the arguments and the fighting as the kids grow up. That's all included in what happens when we want to work without God. What did Psalm 127 say? It said, unless Yahweh builds the house, those who labor, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh is raising the kids with us, we raise kids in vain. All work is in vain unless we do it with Yahweh. But Adam and Eve said, we'll do it our way. Okay, okay then you're going to eat the bread of anxious toil. You're going to give birth with that same toil. You're going to raise kids with that same toil. So be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We messed that up. We've made it hard on ourselves. Then he turns to Adam. Remember, subdue the earth and have dominion. So that means work it, make something of it. Well, Adam, because, verse 17, Genesis three seventeen, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, in our psalm, it says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with children. But here we see an opposite, right? A curse now upon work. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now, and, and they're trying to subdue and have dominion over the earth, it's going to fight against us. We try to plant crops, but thorns and thistles take a portion of it. And this is the futility. This is the vanity. This is the emptiness and the toil and the suffering of work we experience in the fallen world. Is so much of what we aim to do, we only accomplish a fraction of. Because of our limitations, because of our sins, maybe even because of our laziness, because the government takes a big portion of your paycheck, or other people trample and interfere, or there's rivalries and jealousies, and people try to sabotage, and all sorts of things get in the way of our work. And we find ourselves no longer working with God in his world, but working against the world itself, working against the creation and against the other creatures and other people. Work becomes a hardship in our lives. And so the psalm insightfully tells us that unless Yahweh joins the work, our work is in vain. Unless he does it, our work is in vain. I shouldn't say unless Yahweh joins the work because it's the other way in Genesis. Unless we join Yahweh's work, our work is in vain. And here's the question we need to ask ourselves in any endeavor we set out to accomplish. We need to ask ourselves, is God already working on this? is he already there if he is it's a great work to do but if he isn't nowhere in the bible are we called to work without him he works first and it is for us to have the eyes to see where he's working and to say god let me join you in your work unless yahweh builds the house or watches over the city Those who are doing it, do it in vain. But this isn't just talking about your personal house. Maybe you're building a house. Maybe you're shopping for a house. Maybe you have a house or you rent a house or you live with someone else in someone else's house. It's not talking about that kind of house. It's talking about a very specific house. Notice the word house in verse 1. And then the second part of verse 1, the word city. And then, in verse 3, the word children. These three words, house, city, children, go together to bring the reader, and of course every Jew would have picked up on this, to bring them to a very specific house, city, and children. Turn, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7 You have uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, and 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. So we're looking at 2nd Samuel 7. It's about a quarter of an inch into my Bible. In 2nd Samuel 7, we have this interesting scenario. David is the king of Israel. He's in Jerusalem. He's established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And while he's living in a palace of cedar, he looks over at the dwelling place of God where worship's held, and it's still the same tent that they carried around in the wilderness after they were released as slaves from Egypt. And David says, wait a minute here. I have this glorious house, a king's house, and God, the true king of Israel, is sitting in a tent. This isn't right. Right? I want to remedy this. So he tells the prophet Nathan, hey, I want to build a house for God. And Nathan says, go do it. So David wants to set out and do a work, an endeavor. But David nor Nathan paused to ask if God was already working on this. And so God comes to Nathan in the night and says, hey, hey, Nathan, I didn't ask for a house. This was your guys' idea. But here's what I'll do. I'm summarizing. We'll read some of the verse in a minute. Here's what I'll do. I'll let you build me a house, but there's going to be a greater house that I'm going to build. I'm going to build David a house. There's a play on words here. Because the house, yes, God's going to have a literal house, a temple. But for David, he's going to build a house. An ongoing dynasty of sons that will carry on his throne, he says, forever. Okay, so let's look at this. In verse 12, 2 Samuel seven twelve. When your days, he's speaking through the, Na- the prophet Nathan, and Nathan's going to deliver it to David. So the ultimate words to David. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. David, you're going to have children and those children are going to be your inheritance. In other words, the kingdom is going to be carried on in the kids you produce. 13. He, your offspring. Now, there's, there's sort of, we have to read here, is, there's, a, there's a word play going on here. He is referring specifically to his first, or one of his sons, Solomon, the author of our psalm. But it's also referring to all of the offspring, beyond Solomon. And ultimately, he is not Solomon. He is Christ, whom Matthew chapter 1 painstakingly takes us through the genealogy linking Jesus as a descendant of David. Jesus is one of the children that he is blessed with, that he has an inheritance in, that God has given David as a quiver, as an arrow in his quiver. Jesus is one of these. And so we continue to read this promise. It's called a covenant that God gives to David. Verse 13, He, Solomon, Jesus, all your offspring, shall build a house... For my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the big verse. That's the big promise. It's called the Davidic covenant. Now, a covenant was any time that God, it carried three things every time the covenant was made. A covenant begins with a, rela- a revelation of God. God comes and reveals his intentions. He reveals himself. And he does this here. David, there's going to be a kingdom and you will have a descendant reigning over this kingdom forever. That's your inheritance. That's the revelation of God. The revelation then results in a relationship with God. When God reveals himself, it then enables us to relate with him. And so God here is telling David, look, In verse 14, I will be a father, and he, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And I'm going to have this relationship with your descendants forever. God reveals himself, and we relate to him. This is how the covenant is built. And then it brings a third component. He reveals himself, we relate with him, and it all climaxes in some sort of a responsibility we have to God. So there's a responsibility. Continue verse 14. When your sons, or your son, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And that happens, doesn't it? David's first son Solomon ultimately leads the nation astray into idolatry. Then Solomon's son, splits the kingdom with a rival, a political, ambitious young man, and the kingdom splits. And from there, both kingdoms fall to the hands of human kingdoms. What, what in the world, Israel begins to ask, pulling their hair out, especially Psalm 89. What, you promised that you would give us one of David's children to sit on the throne. It would be a kingdom forever. And now the crown has been thrown in the mud. The temple has been destroyed. We don't even have our city anymore. And we are scattered around the world. Have you broken your promise, God? What is up with this? What's up with it is that David's sons decided to stop where, working where God was working. They didn't say, okay, since God is building the house, we will join him. No, nope. they said, we're going to do, we're going to build our own house. And they did it in vain because it could not stand. It's like Jesus said, he who hears these words of mine and does them is like the man who builds his house on a rock. But he who ignores my words is like he who builds his house upon a sand. And when the winds and the storm and the water comes, it falls. But the house on rock stands And so the responsibility we have is that we work with God and not against him. We're not apart from him. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But, verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So yeah, there's a hiccup. Some of David's sons messed it up. The kingdom looked like it went away. It was no more. But then Jesus comes, still one of the sons of David, and the kingdom is restored this is all the echoes here in our psalm the house unless yahweh builds the house what house the temple unless yahweh builds the temple we build it in vain It's God's job to build his church. It's God's job to build his kingdom. It's God's job to lead the mission. It's not for us to decide how to do things. We look around the world and see where is God working, and we join him there. Back in the Jesus movement, everyone saw the hippies as God forsaken. But Chuck Smith said, I think God is working there, and I'm going to go work with him. And then the Jesus movement begins. That's how it works. Not, well, we decided that these kind of people come to church and this is how we do things. That is not how, that's building in vain. We see where he's at work and we join that no matter how surprising. And then the fruit comes. We stop having to beat back the, the thorns and the thistles and stop wiping the sweat off our brow. We can actually work fruitfully. Um, the city, unless Yahweh watches over the city, this is Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem, where they're all headed on pilgrimage. And look, we can can see things in life as something that I worked hard for this. And we strive to gain things. But then guess what? We have to strive to maintain them as well. When we strive to gain, we also strive to maintain That's why it's so important to first say, well, where is God watching? What is his inheritance? What is his possession? Because if it's his, I don't have to strive to maintain it. God will maintain it. But if it's my city, I worked hard for this. I'm going to lose sleep over worrying about it, over watching over it. And so these are the principles um, for sleep. But there's the third word, of course. So the house is the temple, the city is Jerusalem, and the children. These are the lineage. These are the dynasty of King David. Behold, these children. Now, your children are a heritage from the Lord too. But in context, the big meaning here is the sons of the king. Um, But let me footnote here. Some of us are not on good terms with our children and we don't talk to them much or we don't get along with them. I pray that God will show you the heritage you have in them and that you don't cut that off. Because one of the most important works we have in life is to maintain good relationships with that which God has gifted to us. And so that leads us to the third component of work. Uh, First of all, we see that work is participation, as Genesis showed us. God invited us to work his world with him. Second, that our work is an extension of this covenant, that we're working to build God's house, to watch over God's kingdom, his city, uh, that we are all raising children as part of this kingdom. But uh, the third component of work is that work is a vocation. Now, that's a, that's a word Christians like to use a lot, and it's a good word. The word vocation has its root in Latin from the word call. So it's, a vocation is a calling. A vocation is something you have a desire to do. It isn't something someone tells you to punch in and do because you've got to pay the bills. That's a job. That's an occupation. It could be a career. Now, a vocation is something different. Sometimes your vocation can be your job, and that's a wonderful blessing. But sometimes your vocation is completely separate from your job. A vocation is something that deals with the wholeness of life. A vocation comes with relationships. It comes with responsibilities. A vocation is basically who we're becoming and what we're doing as if living before the face of God at all times. You don't need to have a job or it be a certain age to have a vocation. You just need a calling You just need to enjoy doing something where you can get your hands immersed in God's world and work with him. A vocation looks out and says, God is building the house. Let me join him. God is watching over the city. Let me partner with him. That's what a vocation looks like. A vocation, uh, it can be um, ministry, building the house a vocation can be something in society or in the community watching over the city a vocation can be how you raise a family children a vocation comes in so many different shapes and sizes and what we need to do is we need to instill in our children we need to instill in ourselves by being the example that what we are Called on this earth to be as creatures are people who take up a vocation and work alongside with God. We work because we get a revelation of God. We work because we have a relationship with God. And we work because we have a responsibility to God. Our vocation is a mirror. It's an echo. It's a shadow of the covenant that God makes with David that Jesus fulfills and carries out in our midst. That is what a vocation is. It's our participation in the kingdom that God is building and that he is giving us to be part of. And the beautiful thing is that John tells us, the Gospel of John says that Jesus came to make us children of God. We literally become as we follow Jesus by faith. We get to become part of that lineage of David, part of the dynasty, part of the children. Are a heritage of the Lord. There are arrows in the quiver that can stand against the enemy. We are those arrows. We are those children because in Jesus we're made the sons of God. We're put in that. We're not just kids. We're not just God's kids. We are the kids that carry on the kingdom. We are the kids that work in the kingdom alongside the king. We are the kids that Revelation celebrates and sings, Yea, they will now reign over the earth with Christ, the true King David. That is who we are. We get this inheritance. And God is calling us, every single one of us, He's calling us to a vocation in which we can hone and sharpen our skills as we become responsible citizens of his kingdom so that we will know how to rule and reign with him. This is the biblical vision of sound work. It's not doing something because someone tells you to or working more so I can get more. It's finding where God is and joining him with the passion he's put in our hearts. That is sound work. Now, sound theology is the foundation for sound work. When we see what God's up to in the Bible, we learn how to join him in this world. Sound theology produces sound work. And sound work makes the bed for sound sleep. I believe that we don't sleep well as a people because we don't practice sound work and we don't practice sound work because we don't have sound theology. The stats show that over two-thirds of Americans get less than the necessary eight hours of sleep. In other words... Sixty-some percent of Americans decide to go against the 16-hour battery they were created with. To extend that a little bit, not to get the full eight-hour charge that they were designed to have. That they seek to break their limitations. That they seek to enter into verse 2. That they seek to rise up early and go late to rest. Why? Because they're eating the bread of anxious toil. Because 60% of us are building houses that God is not building. We're watching cities that God is not watching. That's the definition of eating the bread of anxious toil. It's worrying ourselves over work that God never wanted us to do. And if we're doing work that God never wanted us to do, We are slaves like Israel and Egypt. We're eating the bread of anxious toil, rising early, going to bed late. Why? Why? Because we're anxious and we're toiling. Remember that word toil is the same word describing the labor pains of a woman giving birth and of a woman raising the children and the suffering and the heartache and the conflict that kids and parents can have. That's what we do to ourselves. Because we aim for the wrong kind of work. When our work is not sound, our sleep is not sound. Because we're slaves. Anxious toil keeps us going. But he gives to his beloved sleep. Sound sleep. Sleep's an interesting thing. Because... You do nothing. You lay down and it's easy for us to label sleep as laziness. And that, I've grown up with the stigma that sleep is laziness. Um, Back in, uh, when there were the circuit riders in America, I read this in uh, in my studies this week somewhere, (laughs) that the circuit riders worked 90 to 100 hours a week riding the horses and preaching from city to city. That's why they're called circuit riders, because they ride around and preach, ride around and preach, ride around and preach. So much so that a ministry was created to give rest, little retreat centers, for the overtaxed circuit riders who would literally fall off their horses in exhaustion. Is that ministry, or is that eating the bread of anxious toil? When we have to create ministries to address a need that the other ministry is causing us to need help in, we need to stop putting band-aids on everything. We need to start asking, wait a minute, maybe we're doing the wrong kind of work. Maybe we're overextending ourselves in places God never asked us to be overextended in. Not every good work, the saying goes, is God's work. Not every good work is God's work. And we need to know the difference. If we sign up for every good work— we would rise early and go to bed late and eat the bread of anxious toil. But if we respond to God's work, we will find that he gives his beloved sleep. Sound theology leads us to sound work, and sound work helps us to fall into sound sleep. So sleep, it's not laziness. It's a gift. And God wants us to appreciate the gifts he's given us, not to spurn them. It's not laziness. It's a gift. So as we open the gift, as we practice sound sleep, letting ourselves live in the 16-hour limitation, letting ourselves be recharged for eight hours, as you try that, you're going to find something interesting. You're going to find that your sleep habits reveal two things about you. Your sleep habits will reveal what you love and they will reveal who you trust. Let's start with what you love. Your sleep habits will reveal what you love. Consider whatever you sacrifice sleep for as that which you love. Whatever you sacrifice sleep for is what you love. So think about this. Um, You stay up late because a child is sick you love the child more than you love sleep and that's a good love you stay up late binging a television series okay you love entertainment more than sleep you stay up late because you can't stop scrolling on facebook cat video someone's plate of food long-winded political rants, other fake news clips, I guess those are all over Facebook, they say. I don't know. But you stay up late doing that, mindlessly surfing the Internet. We're seeing what you love. Or you stay up late because there's a friend over and you're in a really good conversation. We see what you love. Sometimes our lack of sleep reveals Inferior loves, sometimes they reveal superior loves. But if you start to pay attention to what causes you to rise early and what causes you to go to bed late, you will find out that intertwined in there is your heart. We only put sacrifices on the altar of things we love. And so when we sacrifice sleep, we must ask, what altar am I laying this gift from God on? And is it justified? Would I be proud of this? I think that sound work helps us to have sound sleep because it teaches us, it makes us go to bed at night saying, wow, I feel fulfilled. Whereas when we're doing useless work, we don't feel fulfilled, and our mind is spinning all the time. But if we have sound work, we're going to love what we do, and we're going to um, we're find ourselves falling asleep. So our, our sleep habits will reveal what we love. And second, our sleep habits will reveal who we trust. When you go to sleep, you are entrusting the world to someone else. It's not you when you sleep. Often we want to control, micromanage our lives. We want to stay up a little bit later to get a little bit more done or get up a little earlier to get a little bit ahead. We want to kind of have some sort of control in life. And I know I was, until recently, a chronic five to six hour sleeper i under i i know that mindset um but when we sleep we reveal who we trust when i sleep little i have to admit i'm not trusting god much if i'm staying up late or getting up too early worried about i gotta get the sermon put together i am the one who's building the house right i'm not letting god build it and going to bed and trusting that he will continue to build while i sleep that's a concept God doesn't sleep. We learned that in Psalm 121. He doesn't sleep or slumber. And he will keep on working while we are sleeping. And by the way, studies have shown that your brain will actually work on things while you sleep. And when you wake up with eight hours of sleep, you will learn better and you will retain memories better. And you will be able to, they've actually done studies, people are able to accomplish complicated piano procedures um, after eight hours of sleep versus those who didn't sleep eight hours. You are actually working by sleeping, which is why God gave it to us as a gift. He's like, you want to work with me? Here, full benefits. Eight hours of sleep required. My sound work comes with sound sleep. You will not eat the bread of anxious toil if you are building the house with me and watching the city with me. Look at Mark chapter 4. There's two passages in Mark chapter 4 that talk about sleep and trust. First, Mark chapter 4 it's in the New Testament Matthew Mark Mark 4 verse 30 no 4 verse 26 has this parable 4:26 he said the kingdom of god is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground he's working 27 he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how Oh, I love this, because here we're seeing that— the key, and th- by the way, this little analogy of work is paired with the kingdom of God is like this. Working in God's kingdom looks like scattering the seed and going to bed— You don't see the farmer out there worrying over the seeds, shouting at them, reading them poetry, playing them music, doing a little dance to them, making sure they have all the right vitamins or bringing artificial light to make sure they get more that you think they're lacking, trying to make them grow faster. You don't see him out there eating the bread of anxious toil. He goes to sleep and it continues to grow because God keeps working while we sleep. It's incredible to think about. We have limitations. And when I put my head on the pillow at night, I am acknowledging my limitations. That I'm a creature, not a God. That I'm a creature, not a machine. That as a creature, I have... I can only go so far. I can't do everything. When I put my head on the pillow at night, I'm saying, all right, this is the end of the day for me. Whatever's undone is God's. I have to learn to trust him to do the work. I did my best, but I am not going to cheat the system. I'm not going to try to hack the being that God made me and short-circuit everything. I'm going to put my head on the pillow. Sound sleep, sound work go together because when I'm doing God's work, I can sleep well. So I'm going to trust him to keep doing the work. And then in Mark chapter 4, verse 38. Jesus is our example. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I love that verse. You know the passage. They're on the boat crossing the sea. Galilee, the storm comes. The disciples are out of their minds. Jesus is asleep. And Mark gives this little detail on a cushion. Those are, by the way, those little moments of he's asleep on a cushion, those little sparse details that are randomly thrown in, um, those are where apologetics say that's evidence that this is an actual event, not a made-up event like a lot of liberal scholars will say. It's an actual event that was remembered because Peter's believed to be part of Mark's source, that they collaborated to write this, that when he says he was asleep on a cushion, that's an image in your head like, yeah, there's a cushion. You don't just throw in random details like that. Generally, those are generally the random ones are the ones you remember. So there you have like, wow. Here, Peter, through Mark, is recalling this vivid image. I see his face, the slack face when all the muscles give way in deep sleep. He was there drooling on the cushion. And then the sea is calmed when he wakes up. We often look at this passage and say, yes, Jesus got up and worked a miracle. But actually, what Jesus was doing was what God told Adam and Eve to do, to have dominion over the earth. He had dominion over the storm and over the sea. Jesus got up, and there was peace. Sometimes we think, oh my goodness, there's a storm in my life. There's all this anxious toil in my life. I need a miracle. And God's like, I can do that. But why don't you try sleep first? Sometimes getting sound sleep will bring peace to our storms. But what we do is we don't trust God. We trust in our solutions, and we worry about it. We think about it. We strategize about it. And God just says, look, you are a spiritual being, yes, but you're also a physical being. And sometimes you just need to give up and let me work. So our sleep habits reveal what we love. Our sleep habits reveal who we trust. Question, how are we doing with work? Are we working? And how are we doing with sleep? Are we sleeping? Because the two go together. Sound work produces sound sleep. Because sound work is in tune with what God loves, and sound work Trust in what God does. So um, it is my encouragement to us that as we go on our ascent, as we continue on our pilgrimage, as we're in the very middle of this, that we don't stop relying on Yahweh 24 times up and 24 times out, that we continue trusting him, that we continue loving him, and that we will be those who will work hard, but will also sleep hard and sleep deep. God has given this as a gift. Let us receive it. Let's pray.